0: Hey, everybody, Debbie Hiles here from Florida. Give her a warm welcome. Sometimes I skip over her when she comes because it's like she really never left or something. But I didn't know if she fled from the hurricane. Hurricane Michael's right up back there. Yes. (laughs) Category four. I'll tell you what. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 tonight. I was debating whether to go to 5 or 9. So, I took Romans 5 and struck him. Romans chapter 5. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Vermont thing. Romans 5, 12. This is an area we haven't really hit too much. I want to fill in some gaps here. Romans 5, 12 through 15. Now, we've hit the major idea of the justification of all humankind as really central to Paul's message in 5.18 and 19. But this is going to help us lead up to it. I'm going to call tonight, generally speaking, the road to recapitulation because that really big deal in Ephesians one, ten, the recapitulation of all things, In Christ, which is the intention of God, the mystery of God's intent, finds its roots really in this chapter here, in Romans chapter 5, the road to recapitulation, and we'll deal a little bit with Paul's homardiology, the study of sin, theological study of sin. I received a message also that you all prayed kind of urgently for Lynn Rubino in who's in Mexico on a ventilator and your prayers were effective. I was told to report to you that she is being flighted from there to Pittsburgh and she's doing better than if you hadn't prayed. And so you'll have to excuse me. If I ever get hit with prayer requests just before the message, I'm so jammed up in my mind with just the message that sometimes it doesn't come out too clearly. But in a way, that's a good thing, I guess, to be. In fact, I stupidly predicted the Yankees winning, and that was at the end of the message. I obviously didn't have any sense left then. And uh, especially after 16 to 1. See, I'm still depressed a little bit, so no, I'm not. Romans chapter 5, and Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that tonight and tomorrow night, not that we foresee tomorrow that early, but we do ask that these next couple of messages will really help us to come to an understanding of the interpretation of Romans in toto, in its totality. And we thank you, Father, for the universal mercy the infinite and unrestricted love that you've demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ through this wonderful epistle, which has just as much impact and effect and significance to us today as it did to its original audience, and we're so proud to be children of God. We are proud of our father, we are proud of our elder brother, our Lord Jesus, And we're so thankful, and by that we mean we glory in him. And we pray that you'll continue to allow us to glory in our Savior and in the philanthropic action of the triune God in a worshipful way in our lives so that our lives may truly redound to the glory of God. Thank you for that opportunity tonight, Father, and for the grace which alone is able to make that possible. Amen. Paul's hamartiology, the study of sin, very important aspect of theology, hamartiology from the Greek word "tase," hamartia, which means sin or the sin. Paul has a unique hamartiology and It's summed up under two conceptions, really. First, sin as something that human beings do. Secondly, sin as a reigning king, a regnant power, under which all human beings exist in Adam. And that's even more important to Paul's conception of sin. Sin, which I capitalize in my notes, Because it is an apocalyptic power, that's short for apocalypse, an apocalyptic power, an adversarial power and authority that's against God and against human beings. Sin is a reigning, pictured as a reigning king under which all human beings exist in Adam. We've begun to discuss also the motif of Christus Victor, Christ the victor. That's the biblical motif in which Jesus Christ engages in battle with sin as an apocalyptic power and with death, which is sin's wages, as well as the law, which is sin's weapon. Paul brings all these things to the fore. The law in itself, pure and righteous, moral and holy was hijacked by sin, as we will see once again, and became sin's weapon. But Jesus Christ engaged in battle with sin, as it's the apocalyptic power of sin, and with death, which is the wages or the effect and consequences of sin, and the law, which has become sin's weapon, and he wins. Once again, sin is revealed to be an apocalyptic, adverse, cosmic, Power over humanity, from which humanity cannot by any means in this world escape. Not by any means in this world. The liberation from sin's tyrannical dominion, therefore, is effected by a liberator who comes into this world from without. The liberator comes into this world. From outside, no one has ever ascended into heaven except for the Son of Man who descended first from heaven in john three fourteen and of course was lifted up on the cross as Moses lifted up the snake on a pole, so that whoever looked would live. The liberation from sin's tyrannical dominion, therefore, has to be and has been affected by a liberator who comes into the world from without. Romans 5.12, therefore, and we have been moving up to that the past few messages we've gone through, Romans 5.1 through 11, not in an exhaustive way by any means. Romans isn't an exhaustive commentary. It isn't the definitive commentary on Romans. It's just our passing by it. To reveal the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, which is a theme that began at the very beginning of John's gospel, where we were unconscious of it. Passed through revelation, where we became conscious of it. And then in Romans, we are fully conscious of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. And just as importantly, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, the universal Redemptive and reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin—that's he hamatia—and the article looks like this. It's he h e, and then our word hamatia. Just as sin doesn't have the s on it in this particular instance. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world. Please notice that sin is pictured as entering. Sin is therefore a power, a supra-human power. It's personified here because it's entering into the world. It entered into the world. Just as sin entered into the world, that's ton kosmon. And this immediately made me think of John one twenty nine. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The sin that entered the world was taken away by the Lamb of God. That kind of gives away the store right off at the start. In Hebrews 9.26, again, one of those verses that just keeps hanging on in my consciousness. It's Hebrews 9.26. But now, once in the combination of the ages or the juncture of the eons, Christ appeared and that's an apocalyptic word phanerao Christ apocalyptically re- appeared was manifested to remain manifest through the gospel that means to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself the offering of himself the lamb took away the sin of the world sin that entered the world at a particular point as we're seeing here in Romans 5:12 therefore just as sin entered the world And on account of sin, death. Both sin and death are portrayed here as contagions, contagious diseases. As we have seen before, Christ is pictured as Christus Medicus also, Christ the great physician. Just as sin entered into the world, and on account of sin, death, death, we know if you shoot an arrow from 512 to Romans 623, the wages of sin is death. The effect of sin, the final pay day of sin is a death that's incomprehensible. So once again, backing up, therefore, just as sin entered into the cosmos, the world, and on account of sin, death, so similarly, death spread, that means like a contagion, through all human beings. And please note this translation because this one may be a little bit, I don't want to say revolutionary, but different. Through all human beings as evinced, and this is something that I picked up from the Greek text and from theology and from study, Evinced means, we would say, if you turn evidence into a verb, you'd have evidenced. But better, it's evinced. Which is the proof of the fact that death spread throughout all human beings as evinced or shown or demonstrated to be true in that all or everyone sins. Now, the aorist tense is used here for sin, the verb sin. The aorist can be taken as constitutive or historical in this case, which means that it summarizes action that has taken place over the course of human history from Adam's initial transgression forward. So I would actually translate this as death passed into all the human race with its contagion which is evinced, a fact that's evinced or evidenced or demonstrated in that everybody sins. Find someone who hasn't. There is only one who hasn't, of course. He's the one that came into the cosmos from outside the cosmos who knew no sin but was made to be sin. Both ideas of sin are found here in the Hamartiology of Paul. Sin with a capital S enters into the world. It's an apocalyptic adverse power. It's one of those authorities that Paul says will be stripped of its authority when Christ sums up everything in himself in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four. Sin as an apocalyptic power first, and then secondly, all or everyone sins. I put that small, lowercase s-i-n, because it refers to the act of people, something humans do. Sin's evidence, the evidence that sin came into the world and contagion of sin spread as death into all the human race, has evidence for its contagion. In that every human being sins, has sinned, does sin, and that's the evidence. Now the point of this is very important because and I had to go to Cosiman for this. Ernst Cosiman very he did a very thorough commentary in nineteen eighty of Romans. Ernst Cosiman. And he wrote a paragraph on page one hundred forty nine of that great commentary, which I want to read to you and then explain a little bit. He says, quote, the undeniable individualizing in verse 12 D speaking of everyone sinning, the individualizing of sin gives depth to what is said about the scope of the disaster, that disaster being sin entering into the world as later reflection on the individual believer, which we get in Romans 6, gives existential depth to the universal event of salvation. Now that's kind of some big talk, but I want to explain it. He goes on to say, Paul's concern unites what seems to us to be a logical contradiction and what does in fact become antithetical in Judaism. No one commences his own history And no one can be exonerated. Each in his own conduct confirms the fact that he finds himself in a world marked by sin and death. And that he is subject to the burdening curse. Now, that's why I think theology is important in our time. That's why I think people should be up to date with messages because theology answers the problem. When people discover that they're in a world marked by death and sin and that they are complicit with it and can't escape it, they cannot find the answer in psychology. They cannot find the answer in philosophy. They cannot find the answer in, well, virtually anything in this world. The answer is found in the gospel in the apocalypse of God's righteousness and in the cure of sin. He goes on to say, first of all, that really struck me. Each in his own conduct confirms the fact that he finds himself in a world marked by sin and death and that he's subject to the burdening curse. The alternative between free will and natural behavior is alien to the apostle. He's not even dealing with that. And then he goes on to say, again, this is another striking point. He is not oriented to principles, but to experience. And I agree, right here, Paul isn't dealing with principles, but with experience. Sin entered the world at a certain point. Death through sin spread like a contagion. And both of these feed each other as apocalyptic adverse powers. The evidence that sin and death spread throughout all the human race is an experiential evidence. You can see it. Everybody sins. So it's, it's the height of human hypocrisy when people pretend to be shocked when someone sins as if all don't sin. There's a lot of that going around today. There's a a lot of self-righteous hypocrisy going on around today, fed by stupid ideologies, fed by wrong theologies, fed by a misconception of the gospel. So he says he's not oriented to principles, but to experience. He does not view a person as being as a being who can be isolated, but as a manifestation of the world represented by him. That's humbling. We have to face that we are not autonomous individuals, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, we are a manifestation of the world. In which we've been born in which we live a world in which there is contagious sin and death spread to all humankind. For Paul Cosman goes on to explain sin is an offense against the deity of God and therefore against the first commandment. That being you shall not have any other gods before me for this reason it is that is sin and the death, which is its consequence have the character of universal forces, which no one escapes and to which each in his own way is subject both passively and actively. Cosman hits something here that hasn't really been explained up until Cosman said that. And he has students like J.L. Martin and others, and there's been a move to understand this in what we know as the move to apocalyptic theology. But notice what he says once again. Sin and the death which is its consequence have the character of universal forces which no one escapes and to which each in his own way is subject both passively and Actively. Now add to this David Bentley Hart, H A R T. He recently published a book called The New Testament. It's a translation of the New Testament from the standpoint of a universalist theology, the standpoint of a Christian Trinitarian universal salvation aspect. He wrote this. On the same passage, Paul speaks of death and sin as a kind of contagion here, a disease with which all are born and elsewhere. He describes it as a condition like civil enslavement to an unjust master from which we must be redeemed with a manumission fee. That's a ransom price but never as an inherited condition of criminal culpability. And then he goes on to say the most obvious, and I think likely reading speaking of Romans 5, 12 is that in this verse, a parallelism is given in a chiastic form, just as sin entered into the cosmos and introduced death into all its members. So, the contagion of death spread into the whole of humanity and introduced sin into all of its members. This, as we've seen in Romans and elsewhere, is for Paul the very dynamism of death and sin that is reversed in Christ. By his triumphant righteousness, he introduced eternal life into the cosmos. And so as that life spreads into the whole of humanity, it makes all righteous. And then he cites as in verses 15 through 19 of Romans, which we've given quite a bit of attention to, or as in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 which we've also given a lot of attention to in BCP better call Paul. Now, just as the individualizing of human sinfulness gives depth to the scope or the horizon of the disaster, how great is the disaster of the entry of sin into the world and death spreading into all mankind. We have no idea the depth of that disaster. You talk about catastrophe, That is the catastrophe of all catastrophes. And just as the individualizing of human sinfulness found in Romans 5, 12 D gives existential depth to the scope of the disaster caused by sin's entry into the world. So the scope or what I like to call the horizon of the disaster of sin's reign in death. Sets up. For an understanding of the scope or the horizon of the redemption, the reversal of it, the reconciliation that is caused by sin's removal and the resultant reign of grace through righteousness. That's the peak of Romans five twenty-one. So that grace may reign through righteousness. The righteous saving act of God in Christ, in other words, puts a new king on the throne unto eternal life. And that is ultimately for all. When you hit certain peaks, like Romans 5.21, Romans 6.23, Romans 8.38 and 39, Romans 11.32, you hit certain peaks in the mountain range that is Romans, you always have a universalizing of the horizon of redemption even as we had a universalizing of the horizon of the catastrophe of sin. Moreover, in Romans 6, the subject of individualizing or the experience of sanctification is taken up, which we've already done. Besides the fact that we are moving quite rapidly now, you may forget that I took a couple of secret forays, sneak attacks into Romans and already went through Romans 6 and 7 not in a way that is satisfactory to me, but a way that may be just satisfactory enough for Romans right now. So in Romans 6, the individualizing of the experience of sanctification is taken up, showing how each individual through this process, I call it instauration. Yes, this doctrine has never died. It's just remained in the shadows for a little while. Instauration, Instaration. That's what happened to you and I. The root word here is S T A U. And in the Greek, it comes from the word where this word developed, stauros, the cross. The cross. The instaration is the redemption of everything. Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 6 talks about our personal instauration. We died with him. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. We were instarated, And that is what's going to happen to all the universe in all of its times. A redemption Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I have called before the UICC, the universal impact of the cross of Christ, that impact both being restorative and redemptive. Reconciling and rectifying, too, if you want to do some more R's. And so, in Romans 6, the individualizing of the experience of sanctification is taking up, which shows how each individual through instauration, co-crucifixion, co-burial, co-resurrection, can be sanctified unto an experience or set apart to an experience, even now of the life and the livingness that will one day be enjoyed by all of humanity and all of creation in the consummation of the age that was already inaugurated in the crucified and risen Jesus. So Romans 5:13, indeed sin was in the world, sin capital S I N. Sin was in the world. He's not dealing with your particular commission of sin and my commission of sin or my omission, sin by omission, my passive or active sinning. That didn't come until 1951 for me and onwards. And so my sin wasn't in the world before the law, but sin as an apocalyptic cosmic power was in the world before the law, before the Torah was given. But sin now with a small S again, this is what people do sin as an individual transgression is not charged to one's account where there is no law. So sin was in the world before the law was given through Moses, which has a universal application, by the way. It's not just for Israel. The law puts everybody under it, and we'll get into that in Galatians probably a lot more. But sin, as an apocalyptic power, was in the world, in the cosmos, before the law was given. But that sin isn't charged to anyone's account. It's not charged to anyone's account where there is no law. If there's no law, like if somebody said there's no law against it, well, then you're not going to go to jail for what you did if you did that, and there's no law against it. But if there's a law in the books against it, you're in trouble. But before the law, sin was in the world. But sin as an individual transgression is not charged to one's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, says verse 14, death reigned from Adam. There's the word reigned. Reigned as king. Basileu. Reigned as a king. Ruled as a king from Adam. That means the one through whom sin came and death because of sin. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. Adam is the one through whom sin came into the world. Moses is the one through whom the law came into the world. The sin that came into the world through Adam was around a lot longer than the law that came into the world through Moses. Both have universal applications. But because, and this is how I put it before, is in Genesis 4-7, when God said to Cain, sin crouches at the door waiting for its opportunity. And it has mastery. It gains mastery over you. That happened not only to Cain, who murdered his brother, but that also happened to the law itself. Sin was already in the world, crouching like a crouching tiger, waiting for the prey. And the prey was the law. The law came sin hijacked kidnapped abducted the law and used it for its own purpose. That's what Romans 7 is all about. You try to get justified in God's eyes by observance of the law you'll end up producing the exact opposite of the righteousness you intend. Why not because the law is wrong but because the law has been hijacked by sin. So whatever you decide that you're not going to do this evil, you end up doing the evil that you hate and don't want to do. And the thing that you desire to do that's good by your adherence to the law, you end up doing the very opposite. You don't do the good that you will to do, and you do the evil that you hate and will not to do. That's because verse 13 explains it sin was in the world before the law. But then he goes on to say sin. That means as an individual transgression, sin as an act or acts produced from people is not charged to one's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death says verse 14 reigned from Adam. And I put in brackets through whom sin came and death because of sin until Moses through whom the law came. But death still reigned over those, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particular transgression. Meaning Adam sinned in a certain way. What was his sin? God said you will not, he prohibited something, you will not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. That's a direct order. Adam sinned against a direct order. Not all sins are sins against a direct order. Many sins are sins simply of ignorance or sins of cognizance. They're sins that are many sins, but they're not like Adam's sin, which was a direct violation of a direct order from God, but nevertheless, they're still sins. So, death reigned from Adam. Till Moses, even over those human beings who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particular transgression, which was a violation of a direct command. He, therefore, meaning Adam, is a type. Tupas here means an anticipation. He is an anticipation of him. The antitype, I would put in there, antitype, and I'll explain why. He was a type of him. Jesus was an anti-type of Adam. And I'll explain what I mean by that. He was a, Adam was an anticipation of him, the anti-type, who was to come into the world. You have all kinds of things coming into the world here. Sin comes into the world. Law comes into the world. People say there's the cure for sin. Wrong. Sin abducts the law. So until someone comes into the world that handles sin, the human race is under the power of sin. So until all through John, what is Jesus called when he said to Martha, do you believe that your brother will live again? She said, I believe that he will come alive on the last day because we expect the one who is coming There's one who is coming one who is coming. He was always anticipated as coming into the world and that's Jesus Christ. So Adam becomes an anticipation of he or him who was to come into the world. That's Christ. The one who was to come, of course, from our perspective, he has come. The one who is to come is like Adam in that he received a direct command from God, as Adam did. But unlike Adam, Jesus was obedient to that command, whereas Adam was disobedient. Through Adam's single act, but all-encompassing act of obe- disobedience, we were all condemned as sinners. Through Jesus Christ, all-encompassing, all-important act of obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. We were all constituted as righteous. That's what he's getting to in Romans 5.19. But he kind of does what I do a lot. He makes the point, backs up and makes it again. That's actually a Hebrew way of teaching. In, you, you see it in Genesis. You see in Genesis, he talks about creating the man and then the woman from the man in Genesis 2.7 and on through 2.17. But then he steps back and he says it in a different way and says he created them male and female and named them Adam. And he expresses the same creation of the man and the woman, but in a corporate sense, a collective sense in Genesis 5. Paul does the same thing here. He starts, he backs up, he says it again with amplification and elaboration, which is a good way to teach. So again, let's do what Paul does and back up. He, Adam, is a type or an anticipation of him, Jesus Christ, the antitype of Adam, who was to come. The one who was to come is Jesus Christ. Adam's disobedience resulted in death for himself and all of humanity. Jesus, whom he anticipated, really by contrast, Jesus' obedience led to his own death on behalf of all humanity and to justifying life for all humanity. So I've used the word antitype, A-N-T-I-T-Y-P-E, for Jesus. Antitype, according to the American Heritage College Dictionary, fifth edition, is number one, one that is foreshadowed by or identified with An earlier symbol or type. And it even says this in the American Heritage College Dictionary, such as the figure in the New Testament who is a counterpart in the Old Testament. And then the second definition is an opposite or contrasting type. The rest of the time he compares and contrasts Adam with Jesus Christ. He says, like Adam, not like Adam. Like Christ, not like Christ. There is a law of similarity and dissimilarity that he explores here and shows really that redemption wrought by Christ is all out of proportion because it's so far greater than the sin and the catastrophe brought by Adam. As horrifying and universal as the catastrophe brought through Adam's sin, that doesn't even compare, it's all out of proportion with the glory of the awesome redemption that was brought by Christ Jesus universally. And so there is both a similarity and a dissimilarity. So sin may not have been charged to individuals in the absence of the law, but death still reigned. That contagion was still throughout all the human race. In the absence of the law and all human beings did sin. In other words, the effect of sin, death, the wages of sin, the effect of sin, the consequence, however you want to call it, still reigned as king over all of humanity, even when individual sins were not charged or imputed to individual human beings. So I ask this question, then what about after the law? What about if the law came, then aren't sins then charged To people who sin. But then. Romans 325 popped up. So it's not a complete answer. But this popped up in my mind. Romans 325 says. God passed over the sins. That were previously committed. That means. All sins previously committed. Previous to Christ's. Atoning and redemptive. And reconciling death. Were not charged to them whether they committed them under the law or without the law. God passed over them in his clemency and his patience because he was anticipating something that we look back on. Now he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not charging the world's sin to them, not charging their trespasses to them, which means God didn't charge trespasses to the human race that were committed before the law. When sins aren't charged to you before the law, but even after the law, when sins are at least identified by the law, all those sins were passed over. And not imputed to the human race in the act of Christ on the cross. All right. That's left to be explained and elaborated 150 times again from now on. But let's look at verse 14 again. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Even over those that had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particular transgression, he, Adam, is a type or an anticipation of him, the anti type, who was to come, that is, into the world. Like sin came into the world, Jesus came into the world to take sin right out of the world. The law came and only exacerbated the effect of sin, only intensified. It's enslavement of the human race only increased the acts of commissions of sin because now the law defined what sin was. And so there's all kinds of new sins you can commit. If I was say I was a new Moses and I said you will not eat Kentucky fried chicken and there's a brand new one that just went in down the road and there's hundreds of cars pulling in there. And you go by there and you go, Ah oh, yes, that recipe. And oh yeah, the extra crispy and all this. And what if you were thinking, I'm going there right after church? In fact I can't wait until he shuts up. I'm going right there to KFC. But what if I said to you, It's a sin, you shall not commit you shall not commit the sin of eating Kentucky fried chicken? Well, most of you probably wouldn't come back to this church again. You'd, you'd pick the colonel over me any day of the week. People have been doing that for years. Pick the, anyways, but here we have it. Not that there's a contest. But the law came and said, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. thou." And all of a sudden there is all kinds of sin you can commit that you didn't, weren't able to commit before. So sins may not have been charged to individuals in the absence of the law. Death still reigned. But what about after the law? Well, the law couldn't still charge people with sin because God in his clemency passed over the sins. And that's what all the sacrifices of the animals in the Old Testament were all about. They were also anticipating the time when god would reconcile the world to himself in christ and not impute their sins to them so those things were all performed not to purify the conscience from dead works and not to purify the people from a consciousness of sins but to have a sense of what who was coming and what he was going to do it was very comforting so romans 3:25 god passed over the sins that were previously committed Previous to the death of his son. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not charging their sins to them. In Romans 7. Paul continues to sound this note. Showing that the law. Not only did not solve the problem of sin. You could almost picture it this way. Sin comes into the world. Gets control of everybody. The law comes into the world. And challenges sin. But it's no challenge for Sin. Sin takes the law into its own grip and uses it for its own purpose. So what's going to do it then? God coming into the world in an apocalypse of love, in becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, he comes to take away what? The sin of the world. I mean, that's a pretty big thing. He takes away the sin that entered into the world. I think we found that in John one twenty seven, one twenty nine. So then, Romans 7, the law not only didn't solve the problem of sin, but actually became a weapon of sin with the result that anyone who attempts to be justified in God's sight by adherence to the law, which is what this false teacher is telling them they can be, they find that the opposite of rectitude is produced by them. And it's a shocker. Now, if A.T. Robertson is correct, after introducing Romans 5, 12 to 14, Robertson said, Paul starts all over again in five fifteen. At first I thought, eh. Then I thought, yeah. This suggestion has merit in that it proceeds along the lines of the Hebrew scriptures in which an account is given... And then given again in a way that advances and enhances as Jesus did with the parables. He would give the parable publicly. Then he would take his disciples and he would elaborate and explain that the parable that he spoke was metaphorical, but this is what I was speaking of. And he would explain it out in clear terms. This is what happens throughout the scriptures. So Paul does, in fact, start all over again and elaborates and enhances the description in Romans 5.15. He says, but the free gift, Paul's talking about, now I'm making parallel here two things. Sin and death versus the free gift. But I don't want you to see them as equals in a kind of, Persian dualism like Gnosticism was based on dualism an eternal battle between equal powers of evil and good That's not the gospel The power of divine benevolence is infinitely stronger than the power of evil The power of God's gift of life is infinitely stronger than the power of sin and death So Paul said I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. I'm not doing a parallelism of equals equal opposites here because he says look at verse 15 but the free gift the word is charisma here which he later describes as eternal life through jesus christ our lord in 623 is not like the transgression for if by the transgression of the one the many died then how much more have the grace of god and the gift another word for gift hey doria overflowed to enrich the many that is with life by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It's kind of almost difficult to see how he writes. You think I'm hard to understand. Paul here is a little hard to understand, but what he's saying is the free gift is not compared on an equal level with the transgression and its effect. The free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord is much more, much more the grace of God and the gift overflowed to enrich the many. What God's grace did to enrich the whole of the human race with eternal life is far greater in its impact and effect and even in its lasting power than the effect of sin and death on the human race. It's not an equal comparison. Fleming Rutledge, bring a lady in. She was right to say, quote, listen carefully. In fact, she has a gift of clarity that most men that I've read don't have in the theological realm. Fleming Rutledge is right to say this, quote, in the history of Jesus Christ, the entire history of Adam, parentheses, the human race. And that's what the two accounts in Genesis have to do with. Adam." And the human race, Adam equals the human race under sin, Christ, and the human race. The whole human race is now embodied in the second Adam unto life. Even sin's effect isn't everlasting. Death's effect isn't everlasting. Life is. Life is eternal. Life is everlasting. Grace is everlasting. So she said, in the history of Jesus Christ, the entire history of Adam, the human race, is retold in the right way. In that recapitulation, she says, emphasizing it with italics, the powers of sin and death are routed. R-O-U-T-E-D. I looked it up. I said, what do you, you mean? Why don't you just say defeated? Because routed means you not only defeat the enemy, you send them running away in every single direction. Like what Boston did to the Yankees. 16 to 1, that's a rout. 5 to 3, that's a defeat. 2 to 1, that's a defeat. 16 to 1 in your own stadium, that's a rout. So, that helped me understand painfully what she meant. In the history of Jesus Christ, the entire history of Adam, the human race, is retold in the right way. In that recapitulation, the powers of sin and death are routed. Recapitulation was a word made famous by Irenaeus in the second century. More importantly, it's related to the Greek word, yes, you remember, anakephaliao, in Ephesians 1.10. It's a complex verb at the center of which is the noun kefale, kephale. K-E-P-H-A-L-E. Kephale. Which means head. So recapitulation is taking one head. Adam was the head over the human race. And in Adam I'll die. Changing heads. Christ became the head. Over the whole human race, the whole human race therefore becoming his body. See, Adam's body, the body of Adam was the whole human race. And the whole human race, the body of which Adam is the head, die. But the whole human race in Christ, the head of the whole of the human body, is made alive. And I've actually heard brilliant, otherwise brilliant scholars say... (laughs) this doesn't mean everybody's made alive. Only those that are made alive. What? And even Robertson did it. He he said, this doesn't mean everybody has justifying life when it says everybody gets justifying life. He says, it just means everybody who gets justifying life. But Archibald, that's his first name. That's everybody. See, these guys were busy on a lot of different fronts and they didn't have time to nail down this thing I like to call the gospel. <laughs> but anyways, the redemptive summing up of all things in Christ. Ana kephalio saste ta panta en to Christo includes the recapitulation of the human race, once dead in Adam, as alive in Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. Romans 5 is central to the motif of Christus Victor, Christ the victor. Rutledge again puts it s- succinctly. In Romans 5, she says, I'll say it again, in Romans 5, the forgotten cosmic significance of the adamic story is recovered and reversed by the apocalyptic event of Jesus Christ i love that statement because it kind of sums up the whole gospel in romans 5 the forgotten cosmic significance cosmic signif- that's another way of saying universal significance of the adamic story is recovered and reversed by the apocalyptic event of Jesus Christ. This cosmic significance of Adam is what I'm saying now. This cosmic significance of Adam is counterbalanced and overcome by the saving significance of Jesus Christ, which is also cosmic which means it envelops the whole of the horizon called the cosmos, which is another word for the universe. God isn't the universe. God made the universe. The universe didn't send you a message today when you woke up. God's sending you a message tonight through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. The recapitulation of Adamic humanity in Christ is within the context of a universal restoration. It's called apocatastasios. Pantone, the restoration of all things. How do you translate Pantone into our language? How do you translate Ta Panta into our English idiom, which is the mystery of God's intent to summarize, salvifically sum up Ta Panta and To Cristo. It means the universe of proportionate being, but it doesn't just talk about the universe in a spatial sense. It talks about the universe of being in a temporal sense, capturing all of its times, all of its epochs, all of its being in all of its times, redemptively recapitulated in Christ. It's almost like you get to live your life again without sin. In a way. Only that, it's not exactly what happens, but that might as well have happened in what happens in the next age. So, restoration of all things. Call it what you want. I'm going to use the word instauration in the final doctrine that emerges from our study. It may may be the final doctrine that emerges from my career as a pastor teacher. Instauration. There's this thing called anakephaliosis, tapanta ento Christo, the summing up of all things temporally and spatially in all the universe, savingly in Christ. That's the mystery of God's intent. Call it that if you want. I like that word anakephaliosis better than apocatastasis. Because you have Ephesians 1.10 versus Acts chapter 3 verse 21. All the prophets spoke about that. Or you can call it apolutrosis, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that, is called, that it becomes universal in First 1 Corinthians one thirty, Romans 3.24, Hebrews 9.12. Or you can call it apokatalaso, the reconciliation of tapanta, all things in the heavens and earth, in Colossians one twenty, by the peace that was made through the blood of Christ's cross. It's never without the cross of Christ. It's never without Jesus and him crucified. Nothing makes the waters, the bitter waters of the cosmos sweet, except for the tree of the cross. So in closing, the recapitulation of Adamic humanity in Christ, the subject of Romans 5, is within the context of a universal restoration that is of all of creation. The Latin Vulgate, I'm just going to give this as a hint of where we're going because out of all these nine theological functional specialties, we're using nine of them. There's nine theological functional specialties that I'm employing. The ninth is what I call HZ in my notes, horizons. But one of the key ones is simply called doctrines. That's one of the theological functional specialties, doctrines, doctrines that emerge from the scriptures. The one that's emerging from our study, and it has been all along, although I haven't mentioned it much lately, is I N S T A U. R A T I O N. Instaration. That to me is the Roman numeral one that A, B, C, D, and E come under. In other words, instaration, under instaration comes anakephaleosis, the summary of all things in Christ, comes apocatastasis, the universal restoration, comes apocatalasso the reconciliation of all things comes whatever else, the apocalypse of God's love. All those come under instauration. But here's the kicker in Ephesians one 10, the Latin Vulgate translation translates recapitulation this way. It says that I can't read the Latin. I had to do it as an altar boy, but I know I haven't pronounced it correctly, but in dispensationem plenitudinous, Temporum instarare, omnia in Christo, chi in calis, a e chi in terra, sunt in ipso. Which means, in the dispensation, when all times become sim- simultaneous, all things will be summed up in Christ. But guess what word the Latin uses for summed up? in Instarare. Instarare. And that becomes an English word, instauration. I looked it up a long time ago, and I remember teaching this several times, and it needs to be repeated. It comes, this word instaurary in the Latin, S-T-A-U, is related to a Greek root, the Greek S-T-A-U, which is the root word of something that means a cross or a post or a stake. The cross. And it's a word in, second, in 1 Corinthians one eighteen. it's called logos to staru, the word of the cross. Meaning, the cross upon which Jesus, the son of God, suffered and died. So I prefer to use the biblical word instauration as, quote, the divine renovation of the universe a restoration rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. This way the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes the indispensable instrument that God uses to bring about the universal restoration. He only uses one tool. It's the cross. Whether you want to call it polynesia, which Jesus called it in Matthew nineteen twenty eight, the regeneration or the Again, Genesis. Or the apocatastasis Panton, or the anekephaliasos of all things in the universal reconciliation. installation covers it better than all because the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ cannot be disengaged from the universal impact of the cross of Christ. U I C C is as indispensable as USS JC. These two powerful motifs joined as one together become the apocalypse of God's restoration of all things. So as we wind down, To reach the end of our present Roman study. Which is no way an exhaustive one. No way definitive. I'm asking the question. Is Romans. And not only Romans. But all of epistles. Do all of Paul's epistles. Constitute an apocalypse. More importantly. Or significantly. Or specifically. Do all of Paul's epistles. Constitute. An apocalypse of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. So far, yes, emphatically. And it will be even more important and apparent when we're finished. And thank you, Father, for enlightening us as to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by which all humanity is rectified by your grace. And we thank you, Father that you haven't finished creation in the beginning except by a redemptive act at the juncture of the ages. Creation in the beginning wasn't finished until Jesus said it was finished from the cross, which was your instrument in making all things new. Show us the significance like we haven't known it before of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thank you for this opportunity to present to you an offering of our...